0: certainly is good to see everyone that's come to be with us tonight, and uh, we appreciate you so very much for coming tonight and studying the Word of God in this part of our worship service. We're continuing our study on the book of Colossians, chapter 3, and the questions that I have here, the five questions cover verses 12 through 16, and I just want to read those verses for our introduction and then get into our questions But in Colossians chapter 3, let's begin in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So, we're covering these verses tonight, and the first question is about the elect of God. Who are the elect of God? And secondly, what's meant by the phrase put on tender mercies? First of all, I'll just say that the word elect, and in the context of this narrative, means chosen or picked by God. So, understand that first. It's talking about being chosen or picked. By God. Now, one of the things that are very confusing in the religious world is the concept of divine election. And any kind of doctrine that teaches unconditional divine election is false doctrine. We know that. Unconditional election would be that God chose individuals, regardless of what they chose to do in their life, that God handpicked people, and there's nothing you can do to be saved. Or not be saved if God picked you or didn't pick you. That's just the way that it is. And that's not what we believe, and that's not what the Bible teaches about divine election. But we do believe in election. In fact, we, the people of God, are the elect of God. And God has foreordained before the foundation of the world those that were going to be saved, and that is an obedient Christian. So anyone that falls into the category of being an obedient Christian that is complying with the laws of God finds themselves as being the elect, an obedient Christian. Now, let me just make the point about conditional election briefly. Um, this, is very, this is not new. This is very familiar. But there's two parts when we talk about conditional election. And it's really quite simple. There's God's part, and then there's man's part. And it doesn't matter what God did on his part if man doesn't do his part. And it wouldn't have mattered what man would do on his part if God hasn't already done his part. So God predetermined that he was going to save the world... And he decided that his son would be his lamb, his sacrificial lamb. And that was predetermined before the foundation of the world, that Jesus would be the lamb of God and die for the sins of the world. So let's look at God's part. He really did all the work. He sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world, and then he sent the gospel revealed by the Holy Spirit, and those that obey the word of God, obey that gospel, are saved. So God's part Sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world. The Lord's part, he died for the sins of the world and became God's sacrificial lamb. What else did God do? He gave us the gospel. He gave us the power to save, which is the word of God, which is the gospel. That's God's part. Man's part is obedience. And when we do that, we are the elect of God. Now, the phrase put on tender mercies, it's rendered that way in the New King James In the King James Version, it actually renders it bowels of mercy. And you've heard me say this, that when it talks about something from the bowels or the deepest part of the heart, it is always talking about the deepest part of affection. And that's different from when the Bible talks about the heart being the mind. That's a totally different word. But when you talk about bowels, you're talking about something that is tied to the deepest part of affection. So what does it mean? What are bowels of mercies? They are tender affections. In fact, this phraseology, by the way, was a very common Hebraism, and it literally means having a heart of compassion. So what he's saying is this, if you are the elect of God, beloved, have a heart of compassion. Be this particular way in your life, in your demeanor, and in the way that you deal with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So bowels is used in the King James version figuratively in the New Testament. Thayer says a couple of things about that. He said in the Greek poets the bowels were regarded as the seat of a more violent passion, but the Hebrews as the seat of tender affections. And Paul adds a few others too. He says add kindness and humility and meekness and long suffering. And by the way, anytime you talk about long suffering, you're talking about just that suffering long. It's about being patient. You know, one of the things that's hard to be for me in my personality, in my whole life, is being patient. And I know people that are so patient, it just comes natural to them. But this is a command. This is telling me that I need to demonstrate that kind of. Attitude or demonstrate long suffering or patience because that's how I demonstrate that to others, that's going to be reflected in my behavior. So, that sometimes is difficult. That might be a weakness of ours. We have to do that though. Paul says, add those things. So, if you look at the verses and you look at the end of verse 12, remember this was a continuous letter and it wasn't broken down by uh, chapter and verse. So after we finished what was being said about long-suffering and so forth, we roll right into verse 13. And he says, bearing with one another. The King James says, forbearing one another. Then he says, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Here's the question. Can we forgive somebody? that doesn't ask for forgiveness think about that for just a minute can we forgive somebody or is it okay or is it permissible to forgive somebody that does not ask for forgiveness (laughs) the answer to that question is yes you can forgive somebody personally for anything at any time if you wish But please don't misunderstand what i'm saying i'm not saying that the person can receive forgiveness from god if they don't ask or without repentance i'm not talking about that i'm talking about something for example if i choose to forgive somebody of something i'm allowed to do that they still have to answer to god if that be the case give you a couple examples you've heard me preach on this before when stephen was being stoned he said lord lay not this sin to their charge now, they had to answer to God, obviously, in that regard. They had to. What Stephen was saying by saying the words, lay not this sin to their charge, he was basically demonstrating the fact that he personally was not holding that against them. I'll give you another example. This is even better. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus was saying that about someone that was taking his life. Here's the point. It doesn't matter from a personal standpoint if you want to forgive somebody. But let me just demonstrate. Let me just define what I mean by forgiving someone. When you say, I forgive someone, or if I do that, I am literally letting go. Now, obviously, if somebody does you wrong and you have hurt feelings and you have hard feelings and maybe you're angry and maybe you're bitter, and maybe you hold a grudge, and maybe you don't let it go, all that will do is destroy you personally. And when you forgive someone, you're not letting anybody off the hook. They still have to answer to God. What you're saying is, you're saying, I am letting go. I'm not letting that negatively influence me anymore. And you let go. Uh, I preached this. I don't know where I preached it, so if I preached it here, forgive me, but I did preach this not long ago somewhere, and I made this statement about this idea. I said, if somebody does you wrong and offends you in any way and they hurt your feelings or whatever, chances are they've moved forward and they're not even thinking about you. Why would you give them the power To let them make you feel the way that you feel about what they did. Let it go. Let it go. That's what forgiveness is. It is a letting go. Joseph was a great example of that. Named his firstborn son Manasseh, meaning God has made me to forget all the trouble of my father's house. So he let go. He said, I'm not going to be negatively influenced anymore. All right. So bearing with one another, and I'm going to get to Matthew 18 in just a minute, because we have to tie Matthew 18 to this so that we understand what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make. But bearing with one another, or forbearing in the King James, literally means, similar to long-suffering in the previous verse, it's the idea of having a spirit of patience with the faults of others. And this would be manifested in the willingness to forgive somebody who has trespassed against us. Now... The verse is saying this, as Jesus Christ forgave you, also forgive one another. All right. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, Matthew 18. It says, I got to go to that person first. And uh, we're looking for forgiveness, right? Have you ever stop to consider Matthew 18 is exclusive to one thing. It is talking about a sin between two people that's it and I'll tell you something sometimes people want to bind Matthew 18 on all kinds of stuff one thing it is the example of what you do when there's a sin between two people one sins against another that's what Jesus said if anyone sins against you you go to that person now notice why you go there you go there because a sin has occurred And the Bible says if that person hears you or responds favorably to you or repents and makes it right, it says you have gained your brother. Now, the reason that it says you've gained your brother is it implies that you had lost your brother. Do you know why? Because sin separates. And when there's sin, there is a separation of fellowship. That's the reason. You're not going there for them to make up with you, you're going there to help them see their sin and repent and make it right. And Jesus says this, if they won't hear you, you take somebody else with you. Do you know why? Very important. There's a reason that you take somebody with you. Obviously from the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established as it says, but there's more and it's brilliant. Have you ever stopped to consider if I think Terry sinned against me and I go to him and I say, Terry, you sinned against me. And he says, well, no, I didn't. And then I bring some others with me and we go see Terry and we, we we air it all out. Do you know what the people that I bring with me might say, no, wait a minute, Frank, you're wrong, he didn't sin. One of the reasons that you bring others with you is to prove that there really was a sin, why? Because sin separates. So Matthew 18 is talking about sin and it's talking about being forgiven from God and restoring fellowship. So personally though, We can forgive anybody for anything at any time that we choose to do so. But that's really not the problem. The problem is when somebody is asking for forgiveness and people want to withhold their forgiveness. Or people might say, well, we'll just kind of see how it goes. Or we'll just kind of see what happens in the future. Don't do that because that's not what the Lord does for us. So as the Lord forgives us, we forgive others. Question number three covers verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So the, phrase, the, the question is, what's meant by the phrase, the bond of perfection? Well, obviously, it's talking about love. And love is the bond of perfection. Love will make a complete bond of unity between brethren. In fact, This phraseology could actually be better rendered that love is a perfect bond of unity. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul said, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. One more passage, Philippians 2 and 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. One scholar said that such a love that is poured into the hearts of believers is the adhesive of the church. I really appreciated so much Terry's prayer and I always appreciate and I don't do it enough but I always appreciate when a brother prays thanking God for being at peace. Congregations that are not at peace can destroy the work, it can destroy the church and it's a wonderful thing to have a bond of unity. Now, you can have all kinds of things that you have challenges that you're working through, but if you have the bond of unity, you can can make it through. And Paul says what that is, that is, the bond of unity is love. And then in verse number 15, he says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. So, the bond of perfection or the bond of perfectness is love. It flows right into verse 15, and it talks about peace. Now, I know that sometimes we think peace is the feeling that we get when things are going exactly the way that we want them to go. In fact, you can look up, if you Google that, you can get all kinds of definitions. You can look up in dictionaries and get all kinds of definitions. And one of the definitions that is reoccurring, I've looked it up, it's having a feeling of of inside a feeling of contentment because everything is as you want it to be but the peace of God is different in fact the phrase peace of God literally means peace from God it's the peace that only God can give in fact peace is one of the attributes of God you know God is many things We used to sing all the time that song, God is love. Come let us all unite and sing that God is love. Why? Because love is an attribute of God. God's also many other things. One of the things that he is, he is also peace. So what we're talking about is the peace of God, which is the peace that comes from God. It is the calmness of mind that's provided by God. And by the way, When the Bible talks about the peace that surpasses all understanding, have you ever had a peace of mind in the midst of or in the face of terrible things going on? And there's chaotic mess all around us, but we're at peace. And sometimes people that look on us from the world, they don't know why, they don't know how you can be at peace. That's the peace that surpasses all understanding. In other words, you are at peace and you have a peace of mind in spite of the circumstances in your life. There's no understanding to that. It surpasses understanding. You just have it. Do you know why? Because it comes from God. Therefore, that peace that God gives is divine. It comes from God. Now, what is it? If you have the peace of God, regardless of the circumstances in your life, it is this. The best way that I can phrase it is like this. The peace of God that we're talking about that needs to rule and reign in our hearts and needs to absolutely dictate our hearts and lead our hearts and minds and put us in the proper mindset is the peace of mind that knows this, that regardless of the circumstances that are in my life, even if they're very negative, it doesn't matter because everything is right between my soul and God. That's number one. Number two. I'm putting all of this and trusting all of this to God. And I'm putting my life in time and eternity in his hands. And regardless of of the circumstances and regardless of his answer, I'm okay. That is the peace of God that passes all understanding. So what he says is this. Verse 14, put on love. It's the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful you know the idea of being called here in one body you know it talks about that very same thing in Ephesians chapter 1 and it shows the very important place that you can only find this peace of God it is in one body it's in the church Ephesians 1 22 and 23 you know sometimes people can have a peaceful feeling but they can be in error they can be wrong And they could have a peaceful feeling inside, but it didn't come from God. The only ones that get the peace of God that comes from God are his children, his people, the elect that we talked about, the ones that are found, as this verse says, in this one body. That's what comes from God. Other times, people could have feelings of peace, but they're mistaken. It surpasses all understanding. Peace is not subject to the circumstances of life. Then we come to our last verse, Verse 16, a very familiar passage. Verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You know, you can look up a number of commentators, and they'll pretty much say the same thing if they're, make, if they're giving definitions. These definitions are straight from strong. And uh, defining the following words. Psalm, according to, to Mr. Strong, is a pious song or a song of praise. A hymn, according to Strong, is a song written in praise to God, a sacred song. Thirdly, a spiritual song. Spiritual songs, according to Strong, are songs belonging to the Spirit or that have spiritual themes. So... If you look at these definitions, there's really not a whole lot of distinction drawn between any of those. And uh, really, they're, they're they're all quite similar. There's not a tremendous amount of distinction in the definition of them, of the ones listed. The important thing is singing, the word singing. And Strong says that singing is voicing words in musical tones involving modulations and inflections. And singing with grace means that in our singing, it's a message, an attitude, and a sincerity. I think that's great. With our singing, it is a message, it's an attitude, and it's the sincerity that's important. Now, if we're going to teach each other and admonish one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs then it's very imperative that the words of our songs are scriptural. And you know, there are things that are appropriate. I remember in a songbook years ago when I was a kid, we were going to a congregation in Miners Oaks. They had a, they had a, um, a hymnal there. And uh, you open it up, and one of the songs in there, Your Grand Old Flag. Well, you know, Your Grand Old Flag is a fine song on the Fourth of July, but really it has no place in the worship service at all. Um, There's, there was other songs like that. that They're inappropriate. Those are inappropriate things in worship when we sing worshipful songs. So songs need to be appropriate. Uh, You wouldn't lead a song in the morning. Oh, why not tonight? When it's in the morning time, you would want to sing something that would prompt people to be persuaded to step forward and obey the gospel then. And right now, almost persuaded or something else. So it's very important that we use songs that are appropriate and especially scriptural and do so with spiritual content, and the melody is made in the heart. Now, I just want to make one final point about the heart. Um, Thayer says the heart is the seat of our spiritual life. It is the source of our thoughts, our passions, and our desires. That's different from bowels, by the way. That's talking about affection. Here it's talking about the seat of our thoughts, passions, and desires, everything. It is the seat of our spiritual life. It's the source of all that. That's why the Bible says it, uh, that uh, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It's the source of it all. It begins in the mind. It also is our inner man, our spirit, and which we sing, and with those words are to originate from the thoughts and feelings of the heart. We had a, a great singing recently here. Um, we had some, diff- some new songs, and they were fresh. And it's, it's so important to sing songs that we know we can't sing them, or at least sing songs that we can follow but it's important that we sing songs where every aspect of our attitude and our thoughts and our passions and all of that are involved, instead of just singing the words to get through the song. Here's a song we've sung for 30 years. We just go through the song, then the song's over, and we shut the book. It needs to be more than that. And we sing with the heart. And we sing with our, des- our desire is to serve and praise and please God in every aspect that we do. And that's what it means. In spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. When you were saying that, I was thinking about something that happened a few years ago. There was a um, two young two men in a car, and they had been, they had both been drinking, and they got in a car accident and one of them was killed and the one that was, the passenger was the one that was killed. And I remember that the mother of the young man that died said, I forgive you. And there was no asking for forgiveness, said I forgive you. And and I thought, I was so impressed by that because what she was saying, she was saying I release myself, I let go. I'm not gonna hold on to hate and malice I'm not going to allow the bitterness to overtake my life. She was saying that. That's what she was saying to this young man. She said to him, she grabbed him like this. He came into the funeral, it was in Texas, and she had him sit right next to her. And she said, I forgive you. And what she was saying is, I'm not going to be negatively influenced anymore. And I think that's a, I think you're right, Terry. I think you hit it on the head when it said we can't have malice. You're absolutely right. That's a sin got to turn loose of that. So I appreciate that. Appreciate that answer very, very much. Uh, I wanted to say this, uh, add one more thing about the singing. I am so thankful for the men that have the ability to stand up and lead new songs for us. Uh, I think that is so important. And I remember what Linwood said one time. he, He said, that's so important to singing. It's so important to to, to learn new songs and sing new words and sing and, and so forth. It really helps the singing. And if you look at the definition of singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, I think sometimes that is necessary to do that. So, yes, we love the old standbys. Absolutely, we love those. But the new songs, too. And to stretch ourselves and learn new songs, I'm so thankful. And by the way, traveling all over the United States, um, we are blessed here. Uh, traveling all over the country, holding gospel meetings, I'm going to tell you, uh, we have we really have it well here, and very thankful for the men that can do that, and the and the and the, the, the congregation that sings as well as it does. We thank you for listening to our podcast, put on by the Church of Christ, at twenty two fifteen Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at.